fantastic here tonight. You would never know that this team is not headed for the playoffs. Peyton, Bryant, out top against Patterson. Kobe cannot get Patterson in the air. A wild three. Just when you think the basketball gods can't get any cooler. No, I've told you before, this is not the guy you want to let shoot the shot in this building. It seems to be home for him. And with one, one left, Kobe Bryant ties the ball game up as only Kobe Bryant can do. A little space off the board, Babbitt right back to Lillard, wide open. Wide open, Damian Lillard. Kobe, he's answering back with 15 of his own. He's down by eight. Open is Lillard over Kobe. Damian Lillard. All right, Bill and Sue, well, Kobe had an all-out assault on the box score tonight. Didn't sit for one second. Of course, a must game. What was your mindset throughout trying to get this one? You know, just try to run him off the shots. You know, every time we come here, these guys can't miss. I mean, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, we just had to stay with it, continue to be aggressive on defense, and just run them off of those shots. Damian Lillard certainly didn't look like a rookie tonight. You had to find an answer for him. He did late, but what do you think about his game? Yeah, I mean, that boy's serious, man. He's serious, and he's not afraid of anything. And, you know, he has a whole package. You know, he's got the three ball, the mid-range, get all the way to the rim, obviously. And we just had to go get him. We just had to say the hell with it, just go trap him. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Say What You Mean. I'm Jeff. I'm Jake. And you are? And I'm CJ. Oh, he's, he's back. back. So excited. We've been wanting to have a we've been wanting to have you back for a long time. Heck yeah. The last I, one was a lot of fun. I was half asleep though. Oh, and, you uh, were. <laughs> and you guys were matching. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. How's it going, CJ? It's going well. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to talk about, I think, for we've we the thing is CJ and I we text every day. Mm -hmm. So then when we sit down, it's like let's talk about everything we've already been talking about. We're gotcha. workshopping the material. We're That's true. Sure it's ready That's to true. go. Gotcha. Um, how are you, Jake? Uh, I'm well. How about you? Well. Well. Oh, okay. I'm speaking well today. Yeah. Um. Okay. I'm good. Uh. I don't think we can even. So I was telling CJ someone was giving me crap for like talking too much basketball but there's no way we don't talk about basketball no. today no it's, it's it's gonna happen it's near and dear to all three of our hearts so i so. figure we might as well just start it with basketball we might as well get it out of the way <laughs> i figure uh first and foremost kobe bryant died wow yeah i know i couldn't uh i i i got the i got a text message from somebody and i was like there's no way that's that's true yeah there's i still no don't think it's true there's no way i I was going into a movie with my brother mm -hmm. and he got a text message and he's like, did Kobe die? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, someone texted me and said, RIP Kobe. And I was like, that's probably just referencing last night. And he's like, what happened last night? And I was like, LeBron passed him in scoring. So it's probably, but that, that got me thinking about just like how flippant language can be. Mm -hmm. Like people are just like, Oh, RIP. Like you just got murdered. Like, those are those are words that people use, mm -hmm. you know. So when he when I saw that, I was like, oh, it's probably just referencing him being passed and scoring. He's not dead. No. And then I get out of the movie, and all the news are like apps that I have are just like Kobe dies in a helicopter crash. Yeah, I had kind of a similar experience. I opened up Twitter and I saw like 
not a like direct news report, but like somebody reacting. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, that makes it sound like Kobe's dead. Like that's that's impossible. Yeah. And so then I like quickly hit refresh and I'm like, scroll, scroll, scroll. And I see Woj and I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. This is insane. I like, I opened my phone and Jen had gone to the bathroom after the movie and I instantly just started panicking, like looking for, I'm not joking and I'm not afraid to admit this. I cried like yeah. multiple times. Like it just, and like I was texting you last night, CJ, just how social media just makes this whole thing worse because I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. And then I just see all these dedications and videos with his kids and like, it's like, dang it gets me right in the gut. Yeah, it was, uh, I was down at the beach. I was, oh yeah, I was in Cannon beach. I mean, I think this is one of those moments like you'll always remember where you were when you found out. Absolutely. And, um, so like five years when we're, when we sit down and been like, man, like talk about Kobe again, like five years and all this has been passed. I think all of us are going to probably remember exactly how it was. We found out and where we were sitting. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was insanely tragic and there's, I mean, I've, listen to so many people give their takes on mm-hmm, it um mm-hmm. analysts people who knew him and it's just there's no way about it man it's it's just it's heart-wrenching yeah yeah the couple of things stood out to me i was telling jeff um you know kobe came into the league in 1996 and retired in 2006 and so there's a 20-year span there but you think about like social media and the globalization of the nba you know 96 was two years after the original dream team um, which I think really like opened the eyes of maybe the NBA to say like professional basketball is something that has global appeal and mm-hmm. we can a good point. we can do outreach. And so the first kind of star to come up while they're on that stage is Kobe mm, Bryant. That's a and, great point. And then because of social media, we are all able to see these really intimate and personal mm-hmm. reactions mm-hmm. to the news um, from the people oh, who, yeah. from the people who we've watched from a distance and who um, Maybe we're used to seeing like the polished and professional side of them, but but mm-hmm. people are are right. open and That's showing that human reaction and um and in all different ways and all different facets. And I think that's important. I've heard a couple people saying, you know, different people are reacting in different ways, and all those emotions are valid and right. you know represent for that particular person. But um, it also to me has reminded me that every single person that you're interacting with on Twitter or that you see on TV or you're at a sporting event and yelling at mm-hmm. they're real people as well. Right. And they have these complex um, stories and emotions that go beyond what, what we maybe are looking at in a singular moment. And yeah, particularly I think as, as a blazer fan who um, probably felt like for a good chunk of time, Kobe represented like this force that was holding the Blazers down and a barrier between where they were and where I wanted them to be. Right. Um, that certainly impacted my thoughts and feelings toward him. Mm -hmm. I think also the big crazy light bulb for me was when that news breaks and it says Kobe Bryant 41 has passed away. And I went, wait a second, I'm 36. So he's only five years older than me. Mm -hmm which I had never like thought through and calculated out because that means that, you know, in 96, when he was coming into the league, I was in middle school. Um, mm-hmm. And then when he was kind of making that first big push with the Lakers, I was in high school, early college. And, you know, that all kind of lines up, but I guess in my mind, like a professional basketball player that's in the league for three, five, six years at that mm-hmm. point, like I just, in my mind, 
ascribe like being older and being much more mature. The players? Yeah. I, I think about it all the time. Myers and Dame and yeah. even uh, Anthony Simons. I'm like, dude, that kid is 19. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even fathom it now because I look at the years that they're born and it's just like, <laughs> yeah. it's it, it, it's unbelievable in a different way. But right. I think for me, like seeing that and realizing how I reacted to Kobe when I was 16, 17, 18 yeah. years old, and then thinking about who and what I was as a 22, 23, 24 year old Mm -hmm. and, and realizing like how he conducted himself and what I maybe expected of him. Right. Because he's a professional basketball player not like recognizing he's a 20 year old kid. Um, And then how I responded to what I was seeing and what he was doing as a 16, Mm -hmm. 17 year old versus as his career got longer. And as I got older, like starting to be able to be a little more objective about some of that stuff. Absolutely. And, um, one of the stories I saw that I thought was really cool is a um, member of the Blazers media reported that at the last game Kobe played in Portland, mm. one of the season ticket holders that sits courtside called out to him and said, hey, Kobe, I'm going to really miss hating you. And Kobe like looked it over at the person and said, you know, I'm going to really miss loving the fact that you hate me. <laughs> and it's just like that That's perfect, a perfect re- response. And I was remembering, too, there was a Nike commercial they did when Kobe retired mm-hmm. and the premise of the thing is like Kobe's playing in a game and the fans start heckling him and he like kind of turns that and makes it into like this symphony that he's conducting and he's just like bathing in it. Right. But what was, I thought really poignant is that the arena they chose to use to set the commercial in is the Moda center. It's Portland. Mm -hmm. Um, So even, even though the, Lakers will always say Portland's not a rival. Blazer fans will say Lakers are the biggest rival. Right. Mm-hmm. And the NBA was kind of giving a nod to that. And like the commercial, I think, had Rashid Wallace and Damon Stoudemire in it. Mm-hmm. And it had a bunch of other players and other teams represented. But like it kind of starts and finishes with this nod to Portland. And mm-hmm. so like that unique and special relationship. For sure. I mean, that Portland, that the, the motive Rose Garden is mm-hmm. what started Kobe's career. I think that's what started on his fast on his fast track to stardom. Dude, that, Dames started in that building against Kobe. Mm-hmm. That's massive. I know. Sorry, I remember. And, well, I just remember. <laughs> oh, I remember Kobe's remarks about Dame after that that game. Yeah, and it was talking about how good Lillard was going to be. Right. And, um, we all we all took that as like because I mean we, we all I think all Portland fans kind of feel similarly <laughs> about Kobe the yes. player um, when he was in his prime and and ripping our hearts out, <laughs> but the. I think that when someone, but you still respected him, right? Like yeah. it's kind of like me with Tom Brady. Like you still respect the For player, sure. and um, I, and so I think when he said that about Dame, like that was really, it was really yeah. one as a Blazer fan, I love that. For me, it's like when when I first when I first heard the news, like I think what what got me the most, I think all of us, you talked about everybody having different emotions and all of them being valid. I think that's a really good point. For me, it was like it's the lost potential. Right, I think we all oh. we all expected LeBron. Uh, sorry, we all expected Kobe to do so much more in his second act. Yes, as a person, as a member of society, as mm-hmm. a as a father, mm-hmm. and as that's an ambassador for the game. And it was just like all of that's gone now. Yeah, like all the stuff we knew he was a, he was going to do. Right, and mm-hmm. I was sitting there drinking a body armor. Um, <laughs> one of those body armor drinks that he created like he helped create like Mm -hmm. it's there was so much that he was going to do and then all of a sudden it's not there anymore and then also we have to we can't not talk about we can't talk about kobe not talk about his daughter Mm -hmm. yeah and in in the the potential of her 
right? Yeah, like we were I, talking about that a little yeah, bit. I love like the Jimmy Kimmel interview where like he comes up and he's uh. like he asks like and Kobe said like people come up to me and say like oh you need a son to carry on your legacy and his daughter's like I got this yeah like I want to do it yeah like oh man that was just it that tears at your soul mm-hmm. it's so perfect and I I think there's been so many stories about these unique and special relationships that different people had with Kobe absolutely Dame talked about like. Kobe being somebody that he could always like text or call and he would respond back right away. And I think it was Damon. He was saying like, you know, how many people were doing that same thing with Kobe and yet he would always do that and, and validate. And, right. um, one of the stories that I was thinking about is, you know, just in the last year or so, there's been a couple of really unique things that, that I've seen that Kobe's done. And one was, um, the Oregon Ducks women's basketball team. I yeah. think they were playing at UCLA, if I remember mm-hmm. right. And he's there. And like after the game, he's like the fan. He comes out on the court and he like, like calls over to the players to like, can I come and meet you guys? Yeah. And you know, it's Kobe. Of course they're yeah. going to say yes. Yeah. And like, but he wanted to like validate them and, mm-hmm. and take a picture with the team. Um, and just like recognizing, I think he, um, really started to recognize the impact that he could have as an ambassador for basketball and particularly women's basketball. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, the big holes that it feels like this league. That's what I keep thinking about is just his, just how much of a proponent he was to all of women's basketball. Um, I think my biggest thing is you're talking about the second act. My favorite thing so far about Kobe's second act after retirement was watching him be a dad. And I think, and I'm not a dad, but it was my favorite thing. And I was telling these guys, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, being so close with Alex and my niece and like having a a special relationship with a girl and like always trying to build her up and tell her you Mm -hmm. can do anything, but also seeing Kobe do that with his own daughter. And then in the same sense, I love his relationship. And my favorite thing about all the stories coming out is how active he was with kids. There are players that he rivaled. And he wouldn't even talk to them. But if their kids came to the game, he made a point to go over to their kids, talk to their kids, Mm -hmm. and then he would obviously engage with their dad. But it was always a point for him to make the kids feel important. Mm -hmm. And that that's awesome. I love that part. I love I love that about him. And that was my favorite part of seeing what he was doing in retirement. Mm It's just connecting with kids differently than I see some I mean, honestly, LeBron does it a lot too, which is kind of you know, you just see I think a lot of these guys are now understanding, you know, maybe they are role models and maybe they do impact generations. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's, it, or is howling. <laughs> <laughs> um, it bums me out. I don't know. Yeah. Was, uh, I, I, I'm going to go talk to her. Go ahead. Okay. Continue. Okay. Yeah. I think um, part of that modernization of the NBA, you know, Michael Jordan taking the league to the next level and then Kobe and this next generation picking it up is Mm -hmm. this recognition that, um, youth is what drives that. And so, um, I know LeBron told the story about when he was in high school being in the, the city where the NBA all-star game was happening and going and meeting Kobe the night before and Kobe giving him a pair of shoes that he wore, um, in his game the next day, even though they were a size too small, but he's like, you know, these oh, are Kobe's. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I think it's that that thing where like this modern generation of NBA players, by and large, um, even the international guys, because the NBA has made those outreach yes. efforts overseas, like they Giannis. all they all have those experiences of having met some NBA player coming mm-hmm. up and have had having that mentorship experience. Right. Um 
And I think that goes so far. And that's, that's that taking that moment to interact with those kids. Cause you never know which kid is going to be the next LeBron or Kobe right. or Michael Jordan, or who's going to be the next, um, broadcaster or the next right. team right. executive or the yeah. next coach. And, um, you know, those moments and those small things make such a big difference. I really liked what Kyrie Irving said last night, as far as like Kobe planted all these seeds around the league and all these players and not just players, but like you're talking about executives and people and organizations and stuff, just little bits of like knowledge that he's dropped on all these people that they can now use in the future. Kyrie Irving calling him after winning the finals and FaceTiming him and just like telling Kobe it worked like what you, everything you told me worked. Um, so there's a lot of those cases where you, he's just said the right things. And when you're talking about influencing kids, it's, there is, I don't know if there's anybody as far as reports go, as far as what he had said that worked harder than that guy. And so one of the greatest, it's not by accident. He worked at it. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I think kind of also inspires these kids to like, it doesn't just happen. You have to work for it. I think it inspires the NBA players. But I think it also, ins- I mean, just look at the outpouring, how much it ins- that, that work Insane. ethic is salient with the the general population of the I, United I States, agree. that yeah. work ethic and, and coming from kind of coming from nothing and, and building yourself up to an NBA superstar. Right. I think that's one of the reasons why pe- I think people felt like they knew him. Right. Like, in a, in a way, like, yeah, so many people having so many emotions about a guy that they've never met. Right. But you feel those were raw emotions, like emotions that really people felt. And I think it's like a lot of it was a just attachment to his, to Mm -hmm. his story. It's, it's, it's interesting how that Mamba mentality transcends basketball. Yeah. People use that phrase all the time Mm -hmm. about anything about random things, but it's, it's very real that Mamba mentality. And we know when you say it and you use it, you know where it's stemming from. It's Mm -hmm. coming from that work ethic and that desire to be the best. Yeah. Um, rest in peace. Yeah, he's well the best. And well, and and to the families that were with him. I know. And the the pilot, it was like when you look at the details of what might have what happened in that accident, it's heartbreaking. But I'll never believe he's dead. I need proof. Like <laughs> it just does not feel real. It's so weird. Like Dame was saying it the other night. No, was it Dame? No, it wasn't Dame. It was another player just saying like, maybe it, actually, you know what? Maybe it was Dame, but my God, I don't remember who it was, but they were sitting there and they're just like, yeah, I'll just be like going about my day. And then I'll be like, it'll hit me like, oh my gosh, like Kobe's dead. Mm-hmm. Like he died like that. And I can't tell you, Jen's probably so annoyed with the amount of times that I've said that. I'm like, Jen. And she's like, yeah, I'm like, Kobe died. And she's like, I know, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, ugh. It was so interesting too. So I have a son that's nine years old, mm-hmm. and so oh, I won't. Oh, weird, weird for me to think about that too, because again, yes. like with Gianna being thirteen, like it's not that much older. It's just it, like it all seems. Sometimes you think people are so different than you, and you realize yes. it's similar. But, um, you know, at, as I saw this news, and as I was kind of sharing with my family, the, it was really interesting. Like, like the questions that he was asking. Oh about, yes, I'm like, so into this. Like you know, how did this happen? He was like really interested in like the details Mm -hmm. of, you know, like how and why this happened. And then, um, the other night when ESPN was re-airing his final game, Mm -hmm. it was really fun because Hudson, Mm. I don't think knew how the game had gone and like what the outcome was, but we kind of started watching it. And because, 
you know, because it's timely and, and it's Kobe and that I, like, because of his age, Kobe's somebody that like he knows of and knows right. is important, but I don't think is like really conscious of him playing in the NBA or like having seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's like watching and he's like, Oh, it's the third quarter and Kobe has 30 points or, you know, whatever it was. Cause I didn't remember that it was like the last quarter and a half where he just like poured it on. Yeah. But, um, and they were down and they, yeah. And like in the commercials, <laughs> they would kind of like cut away and, um, share like some current commentary and stuff. But he was asking me some really interesting questions about like, you know, did people like Kobe? Did, was, mm. was he bad? Like, and so I'm kind of trying to like explain to him that, you know, as somebody that rooted for a team that he, you know, consistently kept from, from winning, mm-hmm. like he was not my favorite player at that time. <laughs> But it's not that he was a bad person or, you know, it's just in the, in the context of basketball. And, you know, I didn't get into that. There were some things that happened in his life, but I think even today, even in the midst of all this, there are people who that's the thing that they remember. And that, that causes again, some of those emotional reactions that are different than maybe what other people are having. And, um, but I think too, one of the things I thought about is, that stuff that happened in 2003 and four, mm-hmm. um, I think would have then been before any of his daughters were born. Mm. And so then to see how being a father appears to have changed his perspective right. and, and, and to, uh, to girls, isn't he like four or five? Yeah. Four, five, four. four. Mm-hmm. That's insane. His youngest is like what? Eight months. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to get into that specific event right. and what, you know, people can look that up and see, right. you know, what it was about and, develop their own thoughts mm-hmm. and opinions about it. But I just think as a, um, again, as you look at what he became later in his mm-hmm. career and post career and how important, you know, at being a dad of girls and, um, what, what he became passionate about and right. was advocating for. I think that's really important too, to be able to, to tell a story of somebody and say, there's all different facets. And so this, you know, 17, 18, 19 year old that came into the league and was a certain way, mm-hmm. wasn't who he was forever. And there were parts of that right. that were a constant thread, but hopefully you, you over your life, you're taking out things that are not as positive and productive and you're adding in things that are more meaningful. Absolutely. Um, and so I think, you know, as, as time goes by, if we're talking about Kobe again, you know, with greater age and wisdom, that's, things that I, I will look to be able to help enhance that story. That was well said. dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> um, I do. So yeah, that was great. Um, I want to move on real quickly cause I don't want to go too much into basketball, but we have to talk blazers. I mean, Dame had a triple double last night. Yeah, it's, first. it's essential that we talk about blazers. Yeah. Um, Jake, you texted me. CJ, you brought it up prior to recording, but last night. So this is interesting. Terry doesn't do game balls. He does not give game balls away. They've been doing a few more this year, though. He's done one. And that was to Dame. Dame 61. For 60, yeah. 61. And then last night, Dame gets his first triple-double. Um, who did Mello pass on scoring? Kevin Garnett. Kev- Kevin Garnett. Passes Kevin Garnett. So the two of them have these milestone games. And Terry comes in and he's going to give the game ball away. And he turns and gives it to Dame. Dame passes it to Mello. Mello passes it back to Dame. And then they joke about just tacking on as another assist and then gives it to Mello. I know. It's. I. I love Damian Lillard. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's my favorite athlete. Yeah. And I just. I, I want. I, 
I, I when they win the Larry O'Brien Trophy, eventually, and Dame holds that up, I'm going to remember this season because in the season that was lost, he gave everything. Yeah. So I. Is it lost? I mean, they're not winning the championship. Yeah, they this year. are, dude. How <laughs> sweet would it be if I called it and then they did it? I know. Well, we called it earlier, and then we retracted our, our call that they are going to win it. Dude, anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I hate that I feel like I can't grasp or, or comprehend like how good Damian Lillard actually is. Mm-hmm. I watch, and I'm like, man, this is a great performance, and they win this game. And then, you know, I look in, in aggregate, but like... In, in my mind, I don't feel like I'm ever giving him enough credit or respect for what he's actually doing and how truly great he is. And I feel like sometimes I fall victim to to that because I think there are national people who don't see the Blazers all the time mm-hmm. because they play late at night for people on the East Coast and stuff. But constantly, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, Damian Lillard is you know, it's time for him to go to a real team where he can win and stuff like that. And I feel like the mentality is it's because Damian Lillard needs to be a Robin to a Batman. And people like, do not, do not realize or recognize like this dude is an alpha dog. Yeah. Oh yeah. Even John Canzano says stuff like that. Really? Like a guy in our own backyard saying like, Oh, Lillard can't do it by himself. It's like, are you kidding me, man? That's another quote that Kobe said. He's like he was he was referencing everybody saying LeBron had to do it with so and so and so and so and Kobe's like who do you think I had like I had Shaq I had Pau Gasol mm-hmm. like I did not do this alone and he he's he was trying to change that narrative of like these guys don't do it on their own so when you give them crap for having help they all needed help they all had help mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I mean That's Michael annoying. Jordan's not getting through um, Stockton and Malone without Scottie Pippen right. Like that's just anyway. So speaking of help, um, one of the things. Oh, uh oh. One of the things I've been thinking about is a hallmark of Damian Lillard has been like particularly right after the All Star break to like flip this switch and go to this other level that I feel like we all would say we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about that, and I've been thinking about how one of the storylines at the beginning of the season before anything else happened was. How is this team going to tread water, be in a position? And then when Yusuf Nurkic comes back, like that's when the real season starts. And we just have to be like in a place where um, adding Nurk can can move us to the next level we and get to, us yeah, to a We need to stay striking, striking distance. Okay, what I hate about what so. he's about to say, because he told me this before we started recording, okay. is CJ gives me so much damn hope. <laughs> and, and the way he lays this out, I'm like, we're going to win it all. I don't know if this is what's going to happen, but when CJ says it, I'm like, okay, I'm, hell I'm yeah. I'm excited to hear it because I want to <laughs> believe again. But but your quote to me is always, don't fight my emotion with logic. Yes, I so do we go, say So we that. go back and forth. It's like, I think that's that's the Blazer fan mentality. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to believe and somebody else has got to temper those mm-hmm. expectations. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about trading Hassan Whiteside to bring in another piece that positions for the future. Mm-hmm. And then there have been people who've said, well, the way this season is going, maybe it's that you trade Hassan Whiteside to position with a piece that helps you right now with needs that you have. Um, but I look and I say, from a, from a, if you look around the league and you look around the teams the Blazers are competing with to get into that playoff tournament, who else is going to be able to make a trade where they're losing assets to bring back a player that's of the caliber of Yusuf Nurkic, even if he's like average of what he's been recently? Mm-hmm. And then you also hopefully have Zach Collins coming back at some point before the season's over, 
even if it's just in the last few weeks, but you'd have him available for the playoffs. And Scalabissier is sitting out there, who I always forget, is mm-hmm. you know another reason why the front court is so challenged right now. So you're going to be adding three pretty significant pieces, hopefully, um, whether or not you make any other kinds of moves. Mm-hmm. And then once you get into that tournament, anything is possible. You know, you can't guarantee or just be assured that mm-hmm. if you're in the eighth seed and you're facing the Lakers, that they're at full strength. Right. Um, well, CJ, you were talking about Dame turning it on early. Mm-hmm. So he's like, okay, so Dame's turning it on a little bit early, right? Earlier mm-hmm. than he normally does because he's recognizing that in, in February, possibly Nurkic comes back. So turning it on, going it hard early, and then recognizing that maybe now that Nurk- Nurkic comes back, he can let off the gas just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then as more guys start coming in, as the team starts getting better, he lets off the gas pedal a little bit after pushing so hard to get us there. Mm-hmm. And then who knows how that develops in the playoffs. But the way when he said that to me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's going to work. <laughs> and, 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 and a couple of weeks ago, I had seen people were talking about, like, is it time to just throw in the towel on the season? And one of the data points they were using for that is – when CJ McCollum had gone down. And so it's like, Oh, it's another injury. Mm-hmm. Like this team mm-hmm. can barely suit up eight guys for a game. And the stretch from that point until the all-star break was like all really good. It's in playoff. Teams. Their next nine games are incredibly tough. Mm-hmm. So, but let me give you the counterpoint to that. Mm-hmm. So, so give it to him after the all-star break, the Blazers have 18 games left, I think in the season. Okay. Um, it's, they've shifted the schedule. So there's fewer games after the all-star break. 15 of the 18 games are against teams below 500. Ooh. So if you're bringing Nurk back, you're potentially adding these other guys. Dame might be looking and saying, like, these are the tougher games. I'm going to do what it takes to will us through these games. And then I know I've got the all-star break mm-hmm. to take a little rest. And we hopefully are adding some reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And then we have that stretch where we can figure things out. And I probably won't have to push as hard as I have been. Sure. And we can still be in a position to leapfrog those couple teams we need to to get into the playoffs. That's logical. I buy it. Um, I definitely, I definitely buy that. Uh, if they can just go 500 mm-hmm. or slightly above 500 in these nine games, I think that sets you up pretty well for that stretch run that you're talking about yeah. on the other side of the All Star right. break. Right. Their next nine games are brutal. Did you watch last night? I did. Dude, Trevor Ariza. I know. I I was skeptical. That was the, the first move. full game that I've watched with him. He fits like a glove. In the oh, defense. dude, how did he just like, hey, I'm here to work. Like, hey, let's do this. Just walks in the locker room ready to go. He's a constant. I mean, he's a veteran. He's Holy been, he's crap. He's been around the league. He's played with all sorts of different people. There was one play where Swanigan's at the just below the free throw line, gets it. Trevor Ariza sneaks baseline, and Swanigan dumps it to him for a mm-hmm. dunk. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Plays like that happen because of chemistry, or you just know the game. You're a vet. Yeah. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. So the, oh. other, the other thing I was thinking about, too, we mentioned lost season for this year. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other takeaways, if I'm going to be like the perpetual optimist, is right. if I'm somebody else around the league and I look at the Blazers this season, I see what's happening like an instant switch with Trevor Ariza going from a team where he's on the scrap heap to being like a, a starter. Ma- major contributor yeah. and like putting up great numbers. I look at Carmelo Anthony, who... You know, there's multiple reasons, but I mean, one one description of the last year is that 
you know, no team wanted him. Now it's more complex than that because it's no team wanted him with the role that he wanted and the money mm-hmm. that he wanted. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there were compromises that led him to Portland. But you look at what he's become on this team and you look at him saying like, this is a place where I could see myself staying. I, I would like to do that. Right. Um, if I'm some of those vets around the league who the Blazers have maybe gone out to try and target in free agency, they're starting to build this really compelling case that don't just discount us as a small market team right. like you may have in the past. Like, look at what we've done with some marquee players who um, had had options at times or maybe didn't have options when they ended up here but had looked and overlooked us at other times and, like, what could they have done if they had come at a more productive time in their career? And look at what they're getting, what we're getting out of them now. So if you come... You know, at this point in your career, what can we do with you? Right. It's almost a good point. Yeah. It's almost this idea of like maybe players just assuming or thinking like, I know what's best for me as we could probably make the argument for Mello. But then coming into a team in a system and with leadership that it has saying, we got you just let we'll use you as we 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 would have designed, but it'll be in your favor. Mello. Everyone's like, oh, God, here comes the head case. He's going to be mm-hmm. a ball hog. I, that's what I thought. Dude, he was diving on the ground last night. I've never seen that from yeah. him. I text these guys, and I'm like, he's diving, like all caps. In like, a, are a, you kidding me? In a game where he passed Kevin Garnett on the all-time scoring list, he shot only 2 of 11, but had 13 boards. And you could you could say there was five to six other plays that he made that aren't stat sheet plays yeah. that really affected the outcome of that basketball game last night. Mm-hmm. And when can you have ever said that about Melo? Never. <laughs> Iso ball. <laughs> like you, you've even talked a little bit about um, who's another guy like that. There was a, there's an old retired guy, not old, recently retired. That you were like, um, there's no place. Oh, Joe Johnson. Just the Iso ball kind of like just Melo kind of played the sim similar way his whole career, but now you see that little shift and change in that a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's. It's working. And I don't think Joe Johnson ever made that switch. No. No, but Melo definitely seems to have. Yeah. Melo just found, I guess, found the right. If anyone's wondering, if they're in the league and they're like, where should I go? The answer is Portland. Always. (laughs) The answers are here. It's so weird that there are so many people who are just so averse to coming here. It's weird. We We had to overpay Evan Turner. To come here. Yeah. Which is crazy to me, but... So worth it. Yeah. (laughs) I remember a couple years ago um, when Neil O'Shea was kind of talking through his vision for this team and, uh, you know, he kind of talked about like taking the San Antonio Spurs template. Yeah. And I think that's another great example of a team where anybody that goes there tends to overachieve Mm -hmm. what they've done anywhere else recently. And then often when they go other places, that production falls off again. So there's something special in the system and in the way they look at bringing in the right guys and and putting them together. Right. You know, people like, well, I'll go on like the blogosphere or like in the comment sections. How many people want to fire Terry Stotts? Like Portland Trailblazers fans, I want to fire Stotts. That's crazy to me. That's stupid. They don't know anything. And no one is going to fire Stotts. Like they're not firing Stotts. I hope not. Dame, I don't think Dame is happy if they fire Stotts. No, not at all. Ugh. How awesome would it be if Dame and Stotts, Dame, he, not only did Dame play his entire career in Portland, but he mm-hmm. plays with the same coach his entire career. I mean, like you said, Spurs model. Yeah. Stay with something that works. Adapt, change, yeah, Spurs but model. use it, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Either way, it's exciting. I'm excited we're going to win it all again. Do you think they re-signed Melo and start about the four next year? I think it's a smarter move. I do too. It. I'm not sold. I know Neil O'Shea is sold, and he has like he 
says words like bifurcate and has all these like super <laughs> analytical models and everything. And in in as for Collins, I like that, but I like he sold us that Aminu at the four was like this transcendent thing, and it never really felt like it worked mm-hmm. with Aminu at the four. Like yeah, they were able to win, but I always felt they were winning in spite of it. The I don't think Collins particularly works right in today in modern NBA with Nurk on the floor, two seven footers that are some. I mean, Collins is a is a fleet of foot seven footer, right. but I don't think he's getting out there and guarding the perimeter as well as I don't know. I is just, traditionally mellow a small forward. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's what I'm thinking is like when he talks about this revolutionary use of Aminu at a four. Mm-hmm. I think what he envisioned was. Somebody of mellow skill yeah. playing the four. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if you start, you bring back mellow, mm-hmm. right? And you start mellow at the four alongside Nurk in Hoodie, McCollum, and Lillard. Rodney Hood! I totally forgot! Oh, Hood, my and, word. And there's a team option for Hood next yeah. year, and I'm sure they're going to pick it up. Yeah. Because um, that's... Jason Holy Quick, Jason Quick, Jason Quick said from his... Um, from his conversations with O'Shea and other people in the in the in the front office, is that their envision of the front court of like going forward, like they've, they're O'Shea always talks about future trajectories and making sure right. everybody's on the same arc. Is that it is it's the it's that core five of McCollum, Lillard, uh, Hood, Collins, and Nurk. Wow. But I think that Collins is by far a more natural center than he is a I power so forward, too. and you need somebody coming off your bench. Find a way to bring LaMarcus back. The the other thing, too, I've heard people talk about in Neil's system, the fact that the two forward positions are really interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's almost that Collins is more more inclined to be like a center than he is like a small forward. And so mm-hmm. if you're playing this sort of positionless forward role, mm. um, he may not be as strong. The other thing I just have to say while I have this platform is <laughs> Jeff's heard this probably a million and 57 times, uh-huh. but... In my career watching the Blazers, there's one truth that I have come to realize, and it's that you will never lose an NBA championship because your team has too many bigs on it. I was it. thinking about that when and you were talking so, earlier. so, you know, I think ha- – I felt like going into this season, it was the first year I, the Blazers had this embarrassment of riches at at the big positions because you had Whiteside with Nurk coming back. You had Pau Gasol. You had Zach Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Scal would be you scared. had Scal. And – you know, you look at what happens now. They have one guy above six nine, mm-hmm. and it's just that's a position where I'm always comfortable carrying as many bodies as you possibly can. And how I get, tall is Swanigan? I, I, he may be a six nine or six ten. This mm. that was previously when it was like Whiteside was out and Tolliver was in. It was mm-hmm. like oh God, we Tolliver. only had <laughs> we only had one player that was taller than six nine that was oh God, available. Tolliver. But watching that man try to play basketball was yeah, hard yeah. to watch. I, I get that it's a you know it's balancing egos. You've kind of promised that role to Zach, and you also know that Mello ha- there's going to be complexity there if mm-hmm. you try and say we want to bring you back, but you're maybe not in the starting role. But I think you figure out a way to make that work, and you you bring in as many healthy, able bodies as you can, and bodies that want to be here, mm-hmm. like. What other player of Carmelo's caliber are you going to be able to go out this offseason and have them say, I want to come and be on your team? So you figure out a way to make it work. Especially with like basically a whole season of starting work with that unit already. That starting maybe, unit he's already. A, maybe he's an attractive piece, though, for others. You don't think so? I mean, maybe. Yeah. I, I I just think that would be tough for the Blazers to do because he'll be a free agent. And mm, so I gotcha. they would have to... 
either a team would be able to go out and sign him, pay him more money than the Blazers will be able to offer him, or they'd have to be in a situation where they sign him to a very team-friendly deal, mm. and then down the road they turn around and trade him. Somebody Ooh. in his position, too, probably would be able to put in you know, no-trade clauses or things For like sure. that. Um, huh. But... The other thing with Rodney Hood is, you know, I don't think it's a guarantee that he's ready to go opening night next right. season. So you might be able to even have Mello and Zach both out on the floor at the same time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. I like that. That'd be a lot of size. But, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, Blazers are going to win it all. Sorry, we should switch gears because that was a lot of basketball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's been some other big things going on for people in this room. Um in Me? the last week or so, yeah. Oh, uh, Jen had her surgery Monday. And you and I have only talked briefly about it. So. It was seven hours long. Oh, my God. It was insane, It was probably dude. the longest seven hours of your life. So around three or four, I'm like, okay. We knew it could go this long. Yeah. We did. But it was just like, all right, um, this is getting a little long. But, you know, trying. Try, I'm trying, like, I'm talking to myself to, like, be patient. Like, it's cool. Mm-hmm. Like, you're good, dude. Don't worry. Um, but then six, seven, I'm like, okay, what's going on? Then after the seven hours of surgery, it's two hours to wake up from anesthesia and you can't see her when she's waking up during that time. So that was probably the worst part about it was waiting for us, them to say like, okay, you can go see her. Um, even even she said that she was asking like, "Hey, when can I see my husband?" And they're like, "Oh, we just got to make sure you're awake and get you up." And yeah, at that point, you're probably like ready to go Kool Aid Man and just uh, bust through. The I was, wall. I was, I was like, "What the hell's going on?" But then I'm like trying to like keep it cool and like communicate to the family like what's going on. Um, so yeah, just how many different group texts did you have going on updating people? Three. So I did. Like the Andersons, Smiths, and Kinsmans, and then Kinsmans, which well which was also Clay and and her mom, and then my whole family, and I was just like copying and pasting yeah. all three messages. That's a pretty to smart way to do it, though. To Hell get yeah, I'm not texting individuals, um, <laughs> but uh, just so I don't know, because I've been talking about this, so people who are listening are aware of. You know, I'm trying to be an advocate on women's health. If I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. So. Um, her uterus and both ovaries, uh, wait, I want to see the one I text cause I think that best put it. Sorry, 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 sorry. Basically. Okay. This, the endo specialist described the surgery as quote, super gnarly end quote. Really? That was a, that was a medical. <laughs> he was like, using that. It was super gnarly. He's like, uh, when he went in there was an absolute block of bowel, uterus and ovary. He described it as a um, like a fruit salad, saying that all of her parts were suspended in an inflammatory gnarl. So everything's just like there, gunked in like fibrosis and, and scarring. Um, her uterus and bladder were fused together. And uh, he said that there was scarring from endo and from the infection that she got two years ago. Um, there was scarring in there. And he said he was struggling with identifying is this scarring from the endometriosis or is this scarring from the the infection mm-hmm. wow. um he said it's one of the worst if not the worst case that he's ever seen jesus and what's interesting what i appreciate about him is like just because like we sought this professional out this specialist mm-hmm. out we went out of network we changed our insurance just so that we could use this guy and 
he was like, anybody who's not as not trained as I am to, to handle these kinds of cases would get in there and be like, dear God, and then back out, which is essentially what happened with her diagnosis surgery. Mm-hmm. When they went in there to see, okay, maybe it's endometriosis. They went in there and they were like, oh, no. This is the worst we've ever seen. They called the general surgeon. He's like, I can't help this person. And then they sewed her back up and basically like, sorry, we can't help you. And then he talked to talked to us a little bit about like, you know, earlier in his career, you get in there and you get a little anxious, like, oh, no, like, where do I start? And he's like, but, you know, I got in there and I was like, okay, just one piece at a time. Let's go. And just kind of like worked his way Mm -hmm. through. Um, Oh, they, uh. It was um, endometriosis on her bowels, on her small intestines. They had to resect six-inch piece and then staple it back together. Um, took a little bit off her colon. Uh, yeah, it was gnarly, like you said. Wow. Um, but incredible. It's, it's insane to me because she still wants to see the footage. She <laughs> still wants to watch it. And I'm oh. like... And for her reasoning, so when he's telling all of this and he like, and we're, we're talking with him and he leaves and it's just, and, and I look at her and I go, do you feel validated a little bit? And she's like, well, yeah. And I go, all those days of missing work, all those days of leaving early, you know, deciding to go part time because of your pain, not going to family events because you just don't feel well. This kind of validates all of those things. And mm-hmm. she's like, for sure. And then she's like, I still want to watch the video, though. And I'm like, why? And she goes, so I feel validated. I'm like, how did you not already? And yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine from her perspective just and in and, and the pain right now. She's like, I'm at like a two. I was like, are you serious? She's like, this is nothing compared to like when I had my periods or the endometriosis pain. Jesus. She's not even on like oh. narcotics. One, I think the narcotics were making her sick. And we talked about that a little bit. But now she's just an ibuprofen or in Tylenol. She's like, I'm good. Like, this is easy. So hopefully her and he says this is just going to improve her quality of life. I just said I was talking to Michael last night. I was like, all I want is to just ride bikes and go hiking with my wife. That's all I want. Mm-hmm. And like there was a period before all of this got real bad where she was just walk, hiking at WSU by herself and the dog. Like every day, she just made an everyday thing, but it just got too bad where she couldn't do it anymore. And it's like, that's all she wants is just to be able to like do things. Like when we went and saw Bad Boys, um, she like halfway through the movie was like having to like stretch her legs out onto me and stuff and just uncomfortable and in pain. And she's like, I can't wait to just sit through a movie mm-hmm. and not be in pain the whole time. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, and then and, and, and leading up to this, she's like, I can't wait to be on the other side of this. Now that we're on the other side, she's like, I can't wait till like two weeks from now. And I'm like that. Yes, absolutely. But we are on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. Um, naturally, I'm a psycho about any little pain or anything she has going on because of her getting sick with sepsis and stuff. Yeah. Um, her mom got a little crazy on the on the nurses yesterday because. She kind of got real lethargic and like couldn't really stay awake and was getting nauseous. And we're thinking it's just a combination of things, but mostly the narcotic medications. Mm-hmm. They were just dumping all these medicines in her. And I can't imagine that that helps. Um, then they put her back on IV and she's been awesome ever since and not using narcotic pain okay. medications. So well, it's good that you, uh, you know, well, her mom was just it. like, listen, do blood tests or mama bears coming out. <laughs> and they were like, the nurse like called the doctor and was like, Hey, uh, mom says mama bears coming out. So can we get an okay for a blood test? And he's like, yeah, let's do that. And so they've been doing blood tests. Blood tests this morning was great. And she's, she looks good. Yeah. I was telling these guys every time I leave, she does awesome. Mm-hmm. 
But ever, as soon as I come back, she's like lethargic and sick and gross. So either she's just trying to get my attention or <laughs> I'm cursed or something. Um, Probably cursed. Yeah, I would assume so. So, we're. I mean, hopefully it's all good from here. Um, like I said uh, to her, she's got her mom bod now. And what I mean by that is her body that is now ready to be a mom and play with kids. And there's a lot of times where our nephews and nieces will be like, you know, Aunt Jenny, come play soccer with me. And she just can't. And maybe now she can. And she can do those fun things and, and use that new mom bod to, to hopefully be a mom. It's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So well, thanks, we'll thanks for the update. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thanks glad for, thanks to both of you for always listening to me. Of course. Um, I can always be real with you guys and it's nice to, to, you know, not that I'm not being real right now, mm-hmm. but when I'm texting you, I'm like, at this, what the <laughs> hell? But I'm keeping it cool now. We're cool now. Um, but other than that, I did want to tell you, did I send you that picture from my neighbor's explosion? No. Dude, I got to show you this. Uh, so it was like the night before surgery or two nights before surgery. I take, I, you know, we're out back here. Mm-hmm. So I take the dogs out back and I smell like this, bl- you know, you know, like black smoke smells yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like. And I like look around the house and the whole like sky is lit up with like black smoke coming up. I'll show you the picture. Okay. Um, and I'm like, what the hell? So I get Jen. I'm like, Jen, you got to come look at this. And it's bright, dude. Something is burning. And then I see her mom come up the road from her grandma's house. So we go out to the front of the house and I'm like, you see that? And she's like, yeah, I wonder what house that is. I think there's two like massive houses down mm-hmm. the road. And uh, both, I think, have like pretty big shops in the backyard. And we're sitting there and we're like, you know, the neighbors are all coming out of their houses. We're all talking about it. And you just hear boom. And then you just see the flare of flames go up. And I'm like, holy crap. What was that? Like, are there propane tanks? Boom. You hear another explosion. Just like there was like five. Turns out they were like cars and motorcycles. Oh, man. Just being blown up. Yeah. What's heart of the fire? I don't know. I haven't got an update about that oh, or really? anything. I guess it was in the newspaper. I didn't read it. Okay. Because then we got into surgery and all that stuff. But I'll show you the picture. I'll post it too. It was freaking crazy, dude. It was loud. It's that, <laughs> her grandma lives right mm-hmm. here. She calls and is like, is somebody shooting their gun? <laughs> it's like, no, there's a massive fire. And it was crazy. crazy. It was cool. That's nuts. I mean, no one got hurt. but So then it's cool. Mm-hmm. But man, it was crazy. Yeah. So apparently there are circumstances where cars and motorcycles do really explode. Like I was thinking that. I was thinking that. Absolutely. You, you mentioned bad boys, and I'm trying. I think there was a scene. Oh no, I guess not. I'm trying to remember. We went and saw that too, and oh okay. I'm, I'm always thinking about that of like when stuff explodes really fast. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess there was a scene with a with a vehicular explosion. Then I was like, really, is that happened that fast in that circumstance? But I mean, I guess if there's a massive barn fire. Yeah. Did you like that movie? Yeah, it was it was decent. I yeah. I didn't like the kind of dark thread they put into it. At, the at twist the and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so lame. Brittany and I were talking, and and <laughs> there's a part where they're they're hinting at something being a possibility, and yeah. like that is pretty certain. And she kind of leans over, like I'm. I hope that's not true. I hope they like tell it yeah. that way. And then, uh, anyways, I don't want to. Yeah, that, yeah. But. That was the worst part of it. So, also, but for one and two are way better. I just want to say that we had an interesting bad boys experience though. So we come out of the theater and oh. there's like, I see like a fire truck parked out there and then I turn and look and there's an ambulance and like a couple cop cars. Mm-hmm. Like, this is crazy. Like what's going on? 
and I'm like looking for, you know, like some major emergency. And all I see is like, there's this kid sitting on the curb. Kid. How old are you talking about kid here? Probably like a teenager. Who oh, knows? who oh. knows anymore? These yeah, days. Nobody probably, knows. probably like he's probably 12, 18, 19. <laughs> um, so our car was kind of parked by one of the fire trucks. And so we like get in and we're, we're watching and we're like trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And I was like, you know, Somebody that age, I my guess is maybe it's like a drug overdose kind of thing. Oh, because um, they had handcuffs on, and so then we're watching, and then like another ambulance pulls in. We're like, this is weird. There's already one here, but so, um, they put the one person into the ambulance, take off the handcuffs, lay them down, and then cuff them to the to the gurney. Whoa. And then, like when the other ambulance got there and brings out their gurney, they pulled an, another person out of the cop car, who I assume looked older. Um, he was and, 14. No, I, he was probably, he was probably in his early twenties, I think. Uh-huh. But, um, so they laid him down on the gurney and then took him over into the ambulance. So we're like really Whoa. curious, interesting. And so we were looking at, um, police reporting stuff. Yeah. And, I do that too. Um, I do that too. <laughs> it looked like if it was it, what we saw that they were, um, it was drug related, but it was, um, Heroin and meth. Whoa. Um, which What's just, the energy you go to? The one in Battleground. Are you serious? It, wow. It just blows my mind. And so then <laughs> Brittany got down a wormhole of looking at like, what are all the different police reports that are coming in of like different <laughs> things? She's like, is this a safe community? Even? Yeah. Like, like, apparently there was a, another time where there was like a... Um, like an armed person who like barricaded themselves in the theater and then got arrested. And Whoa. Like, I love so, that theater though. Yeah. But obviously it's a freaking crime haven. <laughs> There's crime everywhere. Yeah. There is crime everywhere. We had a, we had a, um, at our Oregon city store, like our loss prevention went in there and like looked underneath the stall. Cause it's like, they thought this dude was stealing mm-hmm. and like a, a gun falls to the floor <laughs> and then a crack pipe. <gasps> So they called the cops, and then like like seven Oregon City police officers like showed up and like threw the like grabbed the dude and like hauled him off. But I don't know, man. It's crazy out there. This is totally off topic. No, it isn't. Not really. But this gets back to stupid ethics talk because I'm doing all that reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, do you? How do you think? And you can get in on this because marketing and stuff. But do you think, or how do you think, maybe? If you guys did like a program where you maybe like had donations for the homeless community for like clothing, hats, gloves, etc. Mm-hmm. If that would change maybe outlook or behavior on just ripping you guys off all the time. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say because yeah. they don't really steal clothes. Just it's, knives. It's knives. And what if you guys just gave out knives? Tents, backpacks. <laughs> I don't know. Just thinking. Trying to solve your problem here, Jake. Yeah, I don't know. They 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 steal a lot of the stuff they steal and then try to return to get like genius. I like that. Okay, get into your. uh, So you wanted to talk about this? I don't know anything because I've been busy, but the floor is yours for the Middle East peace plan. Okay. So I will say that I did see a live video pop up on social media, and I was driving at the time, driving home real quick. So I played it through the speakers and mm-hmm. was just listening to them like pat each other on the back. But that's as far as I got. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> so uh, the Trump administration unveiled its Middle East peace policy. And for the most part, it, it centers around the Israeli Palestinian um, conundrum conflict. There's a lot of different ways you can describe it, but it's, it's been a, it's been a, a never solved 
issue that's never been solved and it's been attempted to be solved many times and nothing seems Mm -hmm. to work. So him getting up there and grandstanding that this is like the best deal of the century is is just typical President Trump. So you try not to take that into too much. You try to take that and just throw it away because it's not even worth listening to. Wait, you mean it's not great just because he says it is? (laughs) No. Uh, okay. I, 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 I'm, and I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't think it's, I mean, could it work? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends upon what your worldview is and what you're hoping to accomplish. I don't, because, I don't know anything because about there's it. There's no, me. like, so his attempt is to try to, um, he, they unveiled this and it was, it was written by Jared Kushner over the last couple of years and finally oh. it's been unveiled. Um, Ever, ever, he said years ago after he was elected, like Kushner's going to work on this and he's going to come up with something great. And then we never heard about it again for years. And right. all of a sudden, boom, this pops up right during the middle of his impeachment trial. Um, and during um, a lead up to an Israeli election, the third one in mm-hmm. like a year or two, yeah. um, which is challenging for Netanyahu. So mm-hmm. I, I saw a report that was saying it's kind of something that's politically expedient for both the for United both, States exactly. and for Netanyahu at this time. Who's also mm, Netanyahu is, is also dealing with corruption charges in his own country. Okay. So both of these guys are under investigation by their governments coming together to basically act as a dominating force over a smaller in an asymmetrical relationship with the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm drawing out major policy that's going to affect the entire world. It's a bit interesting and kind of concerning, right? in my opinion. Um, but I think if you really get into the nitty-gritty of it, it's it's you get, you get past the window dressing of, like, we're going to try to get to a two-state solution here, mm-hmm. whereas there's going to be an independent Palestine. But there's nothing in there that actually benefits Palestine in any way that would, for, that would make them actually agree to the terms. It's like they're... Um, the expansion and, and recognition of Israeli settlements in historically Palestinian territory, like that's there's no why is Palestine going to 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 agree to that? They've never agreed to that in the past. Uh, the recognition of Israeli settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is like there's there's uh, monetary um, uh, there's monetary incentives. For, the only incentives that Palestine gets in this whole in this whole deal, and it's not even a deal because Palestine wasn't even at the table for the last <laughs> two years. This isn't a deal. Let's, right. let's stop calling it a deal. This is a this is a coerced victory. And the basically the, what they get is incentives to work towards an independent state. Like if you start, if you stop, you know, supporting Hamas, mm. or like, mm-hmm. or you start, you start, you start doing certain things, you're going to get monetary incentives, and then you can have like this, and then we'll work towards a recognition of a of a sovereign Palestinian state. But huh. there's constant encroachments by Israel constantly. I mean, and there's no reason for Palestine to trust. Or, or vice versa. There's no reason for any of these sides to trust any of this, and there's no mechanisms in here that are going that's going to foster long-term cooperation. Do you want to add something, CJ? I was just thinking to another. I I was doing a little reading about it, and you were just saying like there's financial incentives to help support an independent Palestinian state. But one of the things I saw was um, that financial incentive is contingent on them accepting this deal right now, mm-hmm. and. Um, mm. The financial incentive to form an independent Pali- Palestinian state, as as identified by this plan, also includes Palestine not having an army. So, being an independent state, but you can't have your own army to protect right. yourself, um, w- which I thought was was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And 
I, you hit right on it, Jake, that Palestine hasn't been involved with this particular negotiation at all. So it's kind of like two third parties coming to you and being like, here's your deal that we've decided is what's going to happen. And <laughs> you can, you can take it and you'll, you'll be a part of this or like to your point, like what's the, the consequence or the, you know, incentive mm-hmm. for them to do it. One thing I also saw is that, um, according to one article I was reading that Palestine has a little bit less support from other players in the region at this time than they maybe have had in the past, which kind of reminded me of when you were talking about the drone strike in Iran previously, and you mentioned that like, we're less dependent on Iran for oil and energy and things Mm -hmm. like that. And we're in a position where we have a little more power so we can get away with maybe doing something like that, that we would have had bigger consequences in the past. It seems like this is also again, where there's like a power and leverage position. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a fantastic point. Trying to paint paint to Palestine and to the rest of the world as like, you have no other support. So it's like either you take this deal or what leg do you really have to stand yeah. on? Saudi, um, Saudi Arabia has, this is the least, you're right. Saudi Arabia, this is the least amount that Saudi Arabia has ever supported the Palestinian claim to a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, what this is, what this is for me is it marks a massive paradigm shift in, and I, I guess some could argue, and I think Trump would, ar- Trump supporters would argue that, um, it's just Trump not apologizing for the use of American power in, in raw in just use of raw American power to dictate to others what's going to happen instead of going through this window dressing of multilateral institutions. And we're going to try to come to a mutually agreed upon uh, agreement. This is basically we're we're the United States. We're the sole world power. We have all we're going to dictate to you what the terms are going to be and you're going to accept it. It gets back to this very classical realism of the power, the powerful do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. I mean, that's that's from Thucydides. I think that's a that's a theory that goes back centuries back to the early Greek days. So I think that it's for me, it's it, it marks a, a massive paradigm shift. And it's indicative of how I think Trump sees the, the world of America in the world. And that is that we're going to use our power to our benefit on a in a in a unilateral sense to achieve what I believe our foreign policy goals are. In the short run, because these are all short run okay. advantages. Okay. I think, yeah. you're, like, but in the long in the long term, it's harder to argue like long term success, especially in an in, in an instance like Palestine and Israel, where all of these times to try to to build long term cooperation have failed miserably. Mm-hmm. So I'm not here to say that this is a necessarily like, it's a terrible deal for palestine and if mm-hmm. you're thinking that we want to come to, to long-term stability and peace and we don't and we're uncomfortable with the united states dictating to the rest of the world using our power like dictating the rest of the world how it's going to be but generally when you have a large like looking at so like if you look at statistically civil wars are least likely to to arise when you have one dominant power when when they're in like internal civil war con- like civil war conflicts when there's been absolute victory by one side that then dictates to the losing side what the new terms are versus a mutually agreed upon um, solution you actually have more war civil war rebreak out more more quickly over you know, studying civil wars over a long period of time that mutually agreed upon like mutual agreements actually lead to civil war quicker than than right. um, than absolute victory does so i don't know like it's it's this is it's interesting to me because this is so far and away different than how we've operated internationally, especially since the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think you hit on when you say like taking the window dressing off of it and like being like very transparent and on the table of like, this is what we're doing and we're America and we're the big power, so we're going to do it. I was reading one article that from the New York Times that was sort of arguing that um, this deal of the century really is in a lot of its substance not entirely different than where we have approached this solution for multiple administrations mm-hmm. and they were saying it's you know it's not as polished around the edges and it's like very blunt about it but that um you could make the case that a lot of what what's in here is what um many people have sort of argued for or pushed for in the past and they were they were bringing up like people who have opposed um this type of a solution and particularly they were looking at Democrats who are maybe running for president or just other leaders in the party. And they were saying oftentimes they'll oppose it, but they won't provide any alternative solution or, or um, what should we do instead? Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the biggest critiques of um, a lot of what the Republicans were doing in trying to undermine Obama's foreign policy is that they would critique Obama's foreign policy, but not offer anything in, in replace. I think that was the, the JC, like the whole, argument or against the Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA, was that, I mean, there was no other solution coming from the Republican side about how to handle a nuclear Iran. And so I, I don't know. I, I think that it, it is, it, it's, it's hard. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't like, I don't like this deal. I would like it to be more cooperative. I think not having Palestine at the table is not a good starting point. Um, and I don't think this is, I don't know if this is particularly stable, but statistically speaking, like talking about, you know, the instances of civil war, um, maybe this, I don't know, maybe this does, but you, I think we're, we're caught up between norms and, and, and um, I don't know, power, the difference between like power and, and, and norms and like, we're so conditioned now to giving the the weaker a voice, right? Like the, the weak power of voice, like where that's not really happened throughout history. Like the weak suffer what they must. And now we're got to the point where it's like Palestine is a group of people and we, we don't want to see it's, it's uncomfortable for us to think of them being just dictated to, right? I think there's a lot of us who, who want to see a peaceful solution to this where Palestine gets what they want. And so I, I think there, there's a natural kind of pushback at least in my mind, against um, just the raw coercive use of power by our by our government and foreign policy. That's just that's just my opinion, but I don't know how you guys feel about that. Uh, <laughs> I can't help but think of like just different instances I've read about where the United States kind of interferes with foreign issues in South America. Mm-hmm. And you guys are talking about window dressing. Is that really the only difference then? It's just not just being blunt and kind of dictatorial about it, opposed to like kind of using more sneaky, shady means to make what you want to happen. Yeah, I think you could make, especially you look at how. Um yeah, I think you could definitely make the make the case. So, with that said, my point is, is that are we just doing what we've always done, but just being more blunt about it? Which mm. I think is the argument that you, I know you're not going to agree. I don't. I don't. I don't necessarily <laughs> completely dis- disagree. I know, and I, I don't completely feel that way. But I do feel that that argument 
will be made yeah. to this this conversation. Well, like Reagan received a massive amount of pushback from Europe and especially Britain for his unilateral use of power throughout um, Central America um, to, fight oh, com- yeah. to fight communism. Oh, like Margaret yeah. Thatcher was pissed as hell about uh, Reagan's um, invasion into um, Granada. Right. Absolutely. But those are the instances I'm talking about. Yeah. So I. That's why I'm wondering, is there a difference like or is it just the simple fact of window dressing or CIA operatives or what is, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think, CJ? So I'm listening to this conversation and I I, um, am a little reluctant to go there. But I think, you know, as I'm hearing what you're saying about use of power and and how and when it's right, I can't help but thinking about um, listening to domestic things that are happening this week and hearing um, the argument being made that the president has the right to do anything that he wants to do if it if it's in the national best interest and if he defines that him being reelected is in the national best interest then anything is on the table um, that's been mm. coming up in the impeachment hearing that's one of the defenses that his um, team has has put forth which what is a shitty argument <laughs> yeah they've, they've kind of been on this journey of like um the the evidence is all already out there and it exonerates him and then they've wow. said well we're not disputing what he did but we don't agree that it's abuse of power or whatever and then they have basically said um if it's in the national best interest um which if if as defined by the president that's being reelected, mm. um then then it's on the table which in my mind, if I was working the other side, the thing I would say is, so if I believe that my being reelected is in the national best interest, then I should be able to mobilize the military or the intelligent community to assassinate my opponents because that will help ensure that right, I get reelected, right. which is in the national best interest. Right. So, like, where does that stop? I don't. Yeah. I, I think uh, like you agree, it's, it's a it's a really, really poor argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I caught just a little bit of the the process last night mm-hmm. and. I was two things stood out to me. One was kind of that. And then I was thinking just in principle of how that works, um, how cool it is that there are people that are in Washington DC that work as Senate pages, which I'm not sure how it works there, but in like the state legislature, those are like high school students Mm -hmm. that come and spend like a couple weeks. And they're like fundamental in that process because in the formal proceeding, the senators like write a question down and the page carries it up to John Roberts. And then he reads the question and Mm -hmm. the teams respond so that they keep that, formality and process right but um no it's just been interesting i um back to the original topic though i think um i don't know where where i land on what's the right balance of right of flexing that that power i think one of the things that has become interesting too is as our world has changed and become in a lot of ways smaller where and what i mean by that is we have firsthand access into more of these things that are happening around the world. Like right. I follow a guy on Instagram who just recently was in this part of the world mm-hmm. and was showing like, this is what it's like in Palestine. This is what it's like in Israel. And like pictures of like the Israeli soldiers guarding these Palestinian settlements mm-hmm. and like talking about how there are people who are in this one area and they have like not been allowed to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just, 
you, you start to see and understand again, like the real people involved. And so I think that probably has increased that sense that we have of not just having one powerful group mm-hmm. dictate right. to the other group. Right. We, we want to see. And That's an interesting point. The, mm-hmm. Those minority viewpoints. Right. I think you have a great point in saying that, you know, Jake, that we do feel like they should have a voice. But I think you have an excellent point also that seeing that or access to seeing who is being dictated to changes maybe a narrative or an idea surrounding. And I think that definitely makes it messier because um, the more voices you have in the conversation, the harder it is to reach consensus. And that's Mm -hmm. probably part of why Mm -hmm. when you have those mutually agreed upon solutions, um, they may not hold up as well. And part of that could be because both sides really have this sense of like, I have power and I have ownership over this. Um, and that's probably a good thing, even though the result in terms of stability may not be as good. Mm-hmm. Um, having that one power that's dictating to the other really relies on the, the, the power that's in control to be benevolent to a degree and to be, mm. um, I remember one of my history classes, we talked about majority rule, minority right. And so kind of balancing those two things mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. The, the, the ruling power then has a responsibility to take care of the power that's, or the, the group that's not in power. Mm. That's very much Hobbesian. And in, in, um, uh, you the 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 subject um, gives up their sovereignty to the sovereign, but the sovereign then has a has a uh, obligation to then look out for the best interests right. of their of the subjects of its subjects. The sovereign being the state, mm-hmm. um, in Hobbes's view, and that you have all these different these all these different Hobbes's view of like the state, and there's other states like so. If, the, if your sovereign isn't you know, treating or meeting your needs, you can go to another sovereign, right? And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, that's we're gonna, we don't need to get yeah. Into don't philosophy. even get into Hobbes and Rousseau, so, dude. We don't need to get into <laughs> philosophy. Uh, but the yeah, I think it's we also we've we've been socialized into democratic norms, right? Where yeah. minorities get a voice, and they may not be in power or have the ability to completely affect things, but they still have agency. And I think when you are looking at a situation that gives absolutely almost zero agency to yeah. to a party, and I think that we become naturally uncomfortable with that. Um, whereas that's definitely hasn't been the norm, but I think it has those norms. And I think I think if you were to see where ideas actually have saliency and in, in themselves actually have power in international relations, is is right here when we're having these conversations about, you know, do we we care about what you know about how. Uh, the weak in any particular instance are being treated, whereas that wasn't really as much of a of a conversation or even a care for most Western powers, um, even prior to World War II. So, um, yeah, it's 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 we'll see. It's just, it's just it, it's a it is a massive. I think this is a massive paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And I think you're gonna if you were to be reelected, you're gonna see more. You will see more of this type of foreign policy. So you have to ask, sit and you ask yourself, like, do you care more about cooperation and and, um, and multilateralism, working th- working through your allies to come to mutually agreed upon um, ag- agreements, or do you want to see the United States dictate its terms to the rest of the world? Then you talk about, okay, what are the long term implications of both of those? What's t- <laughs> one's going to be a lot, much more expensive. Unilateralism is far more expensive than multilateralism right. because of burden sharing. Um, it's funny that in on one instance you have the, the president um, talking about how th- his allies need to pick up the p- need to pick up their share in NATO, right? From you know his, his right. main critique of these international relations is the fact that burden sharing is so asymmetrical, where the United States is funding so much of this, which is there's truth to that, but he overplays it. Um, 
the from so from there but so he critiques people not burden sharing but then he wants to go he wants to be unilateral in all his decision making either like he wants people to to contribute more but then shut up we're going to do what we want I've been thinking this whole time just hypocrisy 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 just keeps coming in my head to kind of use that term to reflect this whole thing I can't help but think of like the United States being the proponent of democracy like we every everyone everyone must be a democracy it just works better let's let's push democracies mm-hmm. right but then in this case the proponents of democracy do not want to allow this party a voice mm-hmm. and a participation in democracy and I'm, and I'm surprised that like his supporters who constantly are call themselves with the silent majority or um they're tired of the the elite, the majority of in the elites in Washington dictating to them what what is happening, and so they they really draw on that democratic ethos, like saying like we're still we're mem- like gun owners. You hear this argument amongst gun owners a lot, like yeah, we're the minority, but we're protected by these these. In- whoa, these whoa, in- whoa! Don't don't you know I'm <laughs> one of them sorry, now, so don't of, just group me. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Um, the big gun rallies, um, you know that's one of the biggest things. It's like yeah, we're the we're the minority, but. We have these in, these inalienable rights, and we were protected by damn right. Process. Sorry, in that the government has an obligation to look out for minority opinions right. and and, uh, and preferences, but then that doesn't translate to international. It doesn't. They don't oh. take that and then apply that same logic oh, okay, to international okay. relations. Yeah, yeah. That's what the point I was making. Yeah, I've been thinking about that particular population too, and I think it's really interesting. Um, if you probably pay too much attention to what people will share and espouse on mm-hmm. Facebook. For sure. But voices that I see from who I would consider like really aligned in that silent majority group are so critical of Congress, you know, both houses, both sides of the aisle, and yet are, you know, like totally behind the president. Mm-hmm. Um, Ugh. And and so like <laughs> even, even the people on the Republican Party who are in Congress and Senate, like you know they'll dump all over them if if there's an opportunity but but the you know the president represents me and so whatever he says so like will will fall in line mm-hmm. with and um which again is like if you if you follow that to like a conclusion and that's the way you think government should be that represents like really giving up a lot of your individual voice i think um you know maybe people do that because every citizen gets to vote for the president and I only get to vote for the senators and representatives from my particular sphere. And so they feel like my, my, in a way, like the logic is my vote counts more for the president because Mm -hmm. I get to vote for that person. But, um, I don't get to vote for who the senator is from California that I hate or the, that's an interesting analysis. That's really good. Even though, even though it's like truly the opposite is true. Right. Um, you know, but that's a great point by shifting your local voice in Congress. Yeah. It's part of this bigger, messier group again, where they're having to reach group consensus. And I think that's the, maybe that's the attractive thing is it's like, if I just get the person at the top and if we've empowered the executive, um, and that person is in line with what I believe or, you know, closest to what I believe, then I'll, you know, and I do whatever I can to keep that person in power. Then we get what we want. Right. That's it. That is it. That's it. Holy shit. I've been searching shit. for three years on how to say it that well. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> so, I mean, and you guys, that's populism. I mean, yeah. that's, it, is, it is populism. Yeah. So. 
Holy! This is why crap. we had you on. <laughs> that was amazing. That was, I don't even know what else to say. Yeah, I I think that is uh, pretty well summed up. I don't. I can't say anything that's going to sound anywhere half as you smart. You just so. dropped the mic, CJ. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm going to close it out. All right. Thank you, CJ. Thank you, CJ, for Thank you guys. joining us. It's always um, a blast, dude. I'm so glad you came back. I love having you on. It's fun, um, especially talking in basketball for as long as we did. Sorry. <laughs> But sorry, but not sorry. Not sorry at all, because I think I, I think that we talked a lot about very poignant things in yeah. that conversation we with had, basketball. Last year, we had weekly installments of Blazer talk mm-hmm. where they're going through the playoffs and everything. Yeah. This year, we haven't talked anything Blazers, so we got like pretty much pretty much the entire year, the entire season's worth in one episode. There so, you go. You know what? Whatever. Till we till we talk about the Anthony Simons dunk contest win. And, yeah. And then in exactly. June, when we do a live report from the parade. Oh yeah. And I go missing for like a week. Is Anthony going to be at the dunk contest? I don't know. I think they're pushing it. They're pushing it really hard. Is Dame going to be an all-star? I think he should be. Okay. Just There's checking. no doubt about Alex that. Alex Crusoe, though. <laughs> Gross. All right. Uh, we made it. I made it. I We did an episode. Yeah. That's stoked. That's fun. And we had a guest. So, goodbye. Goodbye. See ya. Thank you.